see everyone again. Um, just to recap, with the um, contact details that they put up for myself, um, I do work full-time, but don't let that be an excuse to not reach out to me. Uh, if I'm a bit busy, uh, just leave me a text message. I would love to hear from you. If there's anything at any time during the week that you need prayer on or you just need someone to speak to, uh, feel free to reach out. Don't hesitate at all. I am here for you guys. Uh, you guys, I mean, I am working full-time, but I consider you guys my primary responsibility and my primary care. Um, and even though I am doing this part-time at the moment, I do consider, uh, in terms of my list of priorities, this to be at the, at the very top. Um, having said that, why don't we go to the Lord in, no, I'll read the passage first and I'll go to the Lord in prayer. Sorry, uh, my head's not on straight yet. Um, so we are in Mark chapter 2, verses 23, and we're going to read straight to the end of the chapter and read up to verse 6 of chapter 3. So Mark chapter 2, verse 23, through to chapter 3, verse 6. The word of God reads, One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to plug heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you ever read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we come across a very important passage in Mark's gospel uh, as this, this opposition against Jesus from the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees begin to ramp up. Uh, we begin to see this behavior from Jesus and his disciples on the Sabbath to be called into question. Lord, we pray for clarity and vision today. We pray for the Holy Spirit to open our minds, our eyes, and our hearts to hear your voice, to hear what you have to say about the Sabbath, your intention for the Sabbath, what it meant to your people back then, and what it should mean to us today. Lord, I pray that you would watch over the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, we are slowly going through the Gospel of Mark. And if you remember in recent weeks, 
Uh, even though it's very early on, like we're, we're only in chapter 2, chapter 3 of Mark's gospel, it's still very early on, but there is a steadily growing opposition against Jesus, uh, a group of people that are opposed to him in everything that he's trying to do. Uh, it started off with a little bit of curiosity in chapter 1, verse 27, when Jesus casted a demon out of a man in a synagogue. You know, people see this and they say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And then in chapter 2, we saw a paralytic man being carried by his four friends. And as he's lowered through the roof, Jesus not only heals this man, but he also openly forgives the sins of this man by his own authority. And so when the Jewish leaders see and hear this, they begin questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And a few weeks ago, we saw Jesus having dinner with Matthew, the tax collector, and a bunch of his other tax collector friends, and this triggered a response from the scribes of the Pharisees, who then asked Jesus' disciples in chapter 2, verse 16, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? In last week's passage, the Pharisees themselves, then watching Jesus and his disciples feasting, ask Jesus directly, why do John's disciples fast? And the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast. And so if you read through chapters 1, 2, you, you kind of find this growing sense of hostility from the Jewish leaders that's growing against Jesus and his disciples. And it stemmed from a few things. One, it was gradually becoming clearer and clearer that Jesus was revealing himself to the people as God himself, God incarnate. Because who can forgive sins but God himself? And secondly, Jesus in his ministry so far was beginning to dismantle the rabbinic man-made traditions. All these rules that the Jewish leaders had made that completely missed God's original intention in giving the laws. And that's kind of what we see happening in today's passage. Uh, today's passage begins on the Sabbath day. And it begins with Jesus and his disciples going through a nice stroll uh, through a farm. It says a grain field. Uh, I've never been to a grain field before, but I would imagine like with any farm, it's a, it's a big patch of land. And as they're going on this walk, Jesus and his disciples, they become hungry. And so they pluck heads of grain and they start rubbing it together to begin eating. And it's at this point that we learn that Jesus and his disciples aren't alone. Uh, the Pharisees, uh, if you don't know what a Pharisee is, I probably should have mentioned this earlier. A Pharisee was like a, a religious group, kind of like a denomination within Judaism. You'll read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you might read about the Essenes, and later we'll see the Herodians. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the main two groups. Um, they had different theological views, and the way to discern that is that the Pharisees believed in a bodily resurrection. So after you died, there is a resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. They believed that when you died, that was it. Easy way to discern between the two which one's which. Uh, the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection, which is why the Sadducees were sad, you see. Might have heard that before. Oh, yeah. That's an easy way to remember it. But they were going on this walk, 
the Pharisees, suddenly they realize the Pharisees are following them. They're like a little bit creepy, just tailing them, watching them, seeing what's going on. And um, the moment they see the disciples pluck these heads of grain and begin eating, they accuse the disciples of working on the Sabbath. Now, this is where it comes back to those man-made traditions that I mentioned earlier. Uh, it's not disputed that God had given us the Sabbath and commanded that the Sabbath day be kept holy. However, what the rabbis and the Jewish leaders had done over the course of time was compound that command by adding on their own artificial commands to ensure that the original command wasn't broken. Uh, for example, the rabbinic rule, or when I say the rabbinic, the rules that the rabbis made, uh, that they created to prevent people from working on the Sabbath. One of the rules that they created was that you were limited in the distance that you could walk. Uh, you could walk up to about 1,999 paces, which equates to about 800 meters. So it's not a very long distance you were allowed to walk on the Sabbath, according to the rabbis. Um, so if you read in the, in the Gospels, you, if you see something like, you know, Jesus traveled a Sabbath day journey, it literally means 800 meters, like less than 800 meters. So if something was a Sabbath day journey away, it means it was, it was pretty close. Um, and so it was about 800 meters that these rabbis had created. And what that meant was that if you walked 800 meters on the Sabbath, and then you took one more step, for the rabbis, that was like, aha, you're working. You've broken the Sabbath law. They made other rules as well. Uh, I remember one time, um, uh, Ignite MSPC, if you're wondering what that means. MSPC was actually the first church I did ministry at. I just never changed my email address. MSPC for Myongsong Presbyterian Church. But when I was at Myongsong Presbyterian Church, I, I helped out with a lot of different ministries. And I remember... I helped out once with the children and the baby's ministry and there was this little cute baby crawling on the ground and I remember I bent over to pick him up and I ripped my suit pants right down the middle. Like, not a little rip, just like, boom. It made a boom sound, not like a tear, like boom. And then suddenly I could feel my legs getting very cold. I was like, oh, this is not good. But if you were a Jew in the New Testament and you ripped your pants like that on the Sabbath, you were allowed to stitch your clothes together, but you were only allowed to make one stitch. It's, we laugh about it, but this was what happened back then. And if someone was injured on the Sabbath, unless it was a life-threatening injury, uh, you had to wait until the sun went down, until the Sabbath was over, if you wanted to receive medical treatment. Uh, when I was at Myongsang, Presbyterian Church as well. I remember I went on a youth camp and one of my students, um, he dislocated his shoulder playing one of the games on the last day, on the day we were meant to go back to church, on the Sunday for worship. We obviously took him to the ER room and they popped his shoulder back in. But if you were a New Testament Jew and you dislocated your shoulder on the sh Sabbath, you just had to like, I don't know, just... Waddle your way to church with a dislocated shoulder and bear the pain until the sun went down. These were rules that the rabbis had created so as to prevent the original law of God from being broken. Sounds admirable, but the result of all of this was that it totally distorted and missed the whole point. God's original intent intention in actually issuing this command to begin with. 
And we'll come back to that in, you know, in a moment, what the actual purpose of the Sabbath is. Now, Jesus, he's heard this question. Why are you, you know, why are you guys working on the Sabbath? He's heard this question, and in response to their question, he refers to an incident in the Old Testament. And then he makes two bold statements. The incident that he quotes comes from 1 Samuel chapter 21. And in this passage, you'll find that King David, he's not yet king. He's on the run from Saul, who's like obsessed about killing David. Uh, David is on the run with a bunch of his men, his loyal men. And then they enter into a sanctuary. And they're hungry. They're like starving, almost on the verge of fainting. And they begin to eat of what's called the holy bread. If you read in Leviticus, you'll find that there were loaves of bread that were meant to be dedicated to the priests. Uh, David breaks the rules and he eats of this bread. However, if you read through 1 Samuel 21, you find that David wasn't sanctioned for this. He wasn't punished for eating of this bread. This is the example that Jesus shares from the Old Testament. And the reason Jesus shares this example isn't to use David as an excuse for his disciples, but to set a precedence. If the regulations regarding the holy bread were set aside for David, who would go on to become Israel's greatest earthly king, then how much more should it be set aside for Jesus as the Lord of lords and the king of kings? And then Jesus goes on to make two bold statements. The first is in verse 27. Jesus says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath, in other words, was not given to man to imprison him or to burden him. But if you read in Exodus 23, 12, in the Old Testament, it says, Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Deuteronomy 5.14, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any livestock or, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may do what? Rest as well as you. Now, where do we see this idea of rest on the seventh day first making its appearance in Scripture. We see it in Genesis. Because God created the world, according to Genesis, in six days, and it says that he rested on the seventh. And this rest wasn't because he needed it, but ultimately this rest, this day of rest, was instituted as the Sabbath, and it was instituted, according to Jesus, to be a gift for man. Because the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Even the idea of keeping it holy, it's not with the intention to put a ball and a chain on mankind to imprison them or burden them on this seventh day, but for man to be able to rest and enjoy it. And for the Christian in the New Testament, it's to find spiritual renewal and rest in Christ through our worship. The Sabbath is designed to be a gift from God, and it's to be received and treated like a gift from God, not a burden, not a ball and chain to weigh us down and make us dread the seventh day, but something to look forward to. 
Now, the second bold statement that Jesus makes, this is the bombshell statement. Jesus says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, why is this a bombshell statement? Well, any faithful Jew knew that knew the Scriptures, knew that the Son of Man, it, it's a title that comes from the book of Daniel. I think Pastor Eddie covered this, but it's a title from the book of Daniel, and it describes this messianic figure, this, this Christ-like figure who's going to come, and it attributes to him divine God-like qualities. Jesus attributed this title to himself earlier on in chapter 2, that I'm the Son of Man. And we saw it when he forgave the sins of the paralytic man. And in today's passage, he attributes that title to himself again. Now, there are people that might say, the Son of Man, what if that's not a reference to Daniel? What if it's just the son of a physical, artificial, like a man, a male? What if it's a, a son of a man that Jesus is referring to and not the, the Daniel messianic title? What if it's just referring to himself as a descendant of Adam? Uh, well, we know that that's not the case because earlier Jesus used this title synonymously when referring to his divine authority in terms of his authority to forgive sin. And second, uh, Jesus, he uses it in this passage to say that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, we mentioned earlier that the day of rest begins or is introduced in the Genesis account, and it's created by the Creator. We find God himself institutes the Sabbath. So for Jesus to say that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, he's effectively implying to the Pharisees and to the Jewish leaders that, you know what, I am the, the Creator God that created the Sabbath. I am that Creator. This means that Jesus isn't just a healer. He's not just an exorcist. He's not just a preacher like the people of Capernaum thought he was. But Jesus is saying that he himself is a part of the triune Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he is part of the Godhead, the creator God that we find in Genesis. This is why, you know, the Apostle Paul recognized this. And this is why in Colossians 1 uh, verses 15 to 17, he, he writes this like amazing description of Jesus. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, so before time, space and matter. And in him, all things hold together. Creation holds together because of Christ. And so in a nutshell, Jesus is saying, the Sabbath, this Sabbath that you're, you're so intent on keeping, guess what? This Sabbath is a gift from the Creator. It's not a burden. It's a gift from the Creator. And guess what? I am that Creator. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Forget about your rabbinic traditions and your rabbinic rules about the Sabbath. You're going to tell me what the intention of the Sabbath is? I created the Sabbath. You have totally missed the, the intention and the point of what the Sabbath was meant to be about. And that's how chapter 2 ends. Now, in the second part of today's passage in chapter 3, we see that Jesus demonstrates, you know what, these, 
religious leaders, they're burdening society, they're burdening themselves as well, if you think about it, with these rabbinic rules and traditions. And you know what? I'm not going to put up with it. And so in chapter 3, we find that Jesus enters into a synagogue and he encounters a man with a withered hand. I don't know if you've ever seen, have you ever seen those Guinness Book of Records where you, there's this guy in India who's just held his right hand up for like 50 years or something? Uh, and his right hand is just like, it's just a toothpick. It's like shriveled. Um, this is the kind of hand that Jesus encountered when he saw this man with a withered hand. Like his, his one hand was normal. The other one was just like a, a toothpick shaped into a claw. That's what it looked like. And so verse 2, it says that when Jesus encountered this man, the Pharisees are watching. Verse 2 says that they, they, the Pharisees, the guys that followed Jesus through the grain fields, they followed him into the synagogue and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Why? So that they could accuse him. This man's injury, remember, is a withered hand. Uh, and if you remember the rabbinic rules that I shared earlier, you were only allowed to administer any kind of healing or medical treatment if it was a life-threatening injury. This man's withered hand, therefore, in their books, didn't qualify. Because this guy, if it, even if he didn't get healed, he'd live till the next day. And so despite everything that Jesus has just said to them up until the end of chapter 2, everything that Jesus has said about what the true intention of the Sabbath is meant to be, these Pharisees are so hardened in their hearts that they don't care. They just want to catch Jesus out, have that, you know, aha moment and point out Jesus and accuse him. They want to see if Jesus is going to break their rules so that they can humiliate him and discredit him in front of everyone. But you know what's ironic about this, about all their efforts, is that they've spent an entire day following Jesus everywhere, tailing him. Remember, they went in through the grain fields. And if you've ever been to a farm and walked through the fields, you know that the length of that walk would be more than 800 meters. It would have been way more than 800 meters. These Pharisees that were so keen on following Jesus, that were so obsessed following him everywhere, even the walk through the grain fields alone would have meant that they would have broken their own rules. But because their hearts were so hardened, they're oblivious to what they've done because they're so obsessed in accusing Jesus of what he does. And so they want to see, forgetting that they've broken that their Sabbath day journey rule, they want to see if Jesus is going to heal this man on the Sabbath, who in their mind, because it's not a life-threatening injury, shouldn't be healed on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is aware of all of this, and he turns and calls the man to himself. Come here. It's not a very nice way to refer to someone, but he probably was quite angry. Come here. And the man with the withered hand I can only imagine what he must have been feeling. He, he just came to church, church to worship. Like withered hand, he's probably like self-conscious about the withered hand. Just came to church to worship and he's just, come here. And the Pharisees, all the Jewish leaders are all lined up. But he obeys. And he comes to Jesus. And then Jesus turns to the Pharisees. 
And this time it's Jesus who asks them a question. He asks them in verse 4, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill? Now let me repeat that. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? This shouldn't be a difficult question to answer. Do good or do harm? Save a life or kill someone? It should be an easy, it's not a rhetorical question where there's like no answer. It's not a philosophical question. But verse 4 says that they were silent. And the fact that Jesus' blatantly obvious question is met with nothing but silence infuriates the Christ. Verse 5 says that Jesus looked around them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart. It's a mixture of emotions uh, that Mark describes Jesus as having. Uh, The Greek word used for anger uh, in the Gospel of Mark in in that verse is orges. And it's a term that's used synonymously. Not like, oh, I'm a bit upset, but it's, you know, when when the Bible describes the fury, like the pure, red-hot fury and wrath of God in crushing evil, this is the word that Mark uses in describing how Jesus felt in that moment because of the hardness of their heart. But at the same time, it says that Jesus was grieved. And so Jesus, having this mixture of, you know, sorrow and righteous, furious anger, he tells the man then to stretch out his hand. I really feel sorry for this guy. He, imagine having a shriveled hand and Jesus saying, show everyone your hand. Stretch it out. And verse 5 tells us that he does stretch it out. Got to give him credit. He stretches it out, and the moment he stretches it out, it says that his hand was restored. Not that he could open his hand, but this toothpick hand was restored into a normal-looking hand, symmetrical to the one on his other side. Now, What's the reaction from the Pharisees in verse 6? It says that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. These Pharisees were waiting. They knew this was going to happen, and they were waiting to see if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath so that they could accuse him of working. But you know what's crazy about this passage? is that if you look at the way that Jesus healed this man, healed this withered hand, can you really classify it as work? What did he actually do? Because if you read verse 5 again, it says, And he looked around him in anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. That's it. That's all he said. Those four words, stretch out your hand. Jesus didn't touch the man. He didn't command healing. All he did was tell this man, stretch out your hand. Technically, on paper, Jesus hadn't broken any of the rabbinic laws or rules. 
And yet, ironically, it's the Pharisees who become guilty. They're already guilty of breaking their own rules by walking more than 800 meters. But now they compound their guilt. Because what are they doing at the end of today's passage? They're organizing a conference meeting on the Sabbath. And not just a meeting, but a meeting with the Herodians. Now, if you don't know who the Herodians are, um, the hint is in the name, Herod. Uh, they were a political group that supported King Herod. And there's a few King Herods in Scripture. This was the King Herod that had John the Baptist's head cut off. Um, not a good guy. And even the Jews considered Herod to be an evil king. Um, and so that Jewish people weren't fond of the Herodians either. But the Pharisees, these guys who were so self-righteous and all about keeping God's law, all about not working on the Sabbath, not only exceed their own rules by walking more than 800 meters, but they continue to break their own rules by working in cahoots with the Herodians. And not only that, they plan the murder on the Sabbath. And not just any murder. On the Sabbath, they plan to murder the Lord of the Sabbath. How ironic is that? Remember, these guys were meant to be staunch defenders of the rules regarding the Sabbath and everything that the Sabbath supposedly represented. But now they're spending the Sabbath planning the murder of the Lord of the Sabbath. And so if you think about it, their actions speak volumes. Because if you remember their silent response to Jesus' Jesus's question in verse 4. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Obviously, the right answer is to save a life. Obviously, the right answer is to do good. But in their hardened hearts, they can only respond with silence. Because in their hearts, they knew that the only thing that they could think of was how are we going to get rid of Jesus? How are we going to kill Jesus? The Lord of the Sabbath. And they do it on the Sabbath of all days. Very ironic. And that's how today's passage ends. Now, again, like last week, uh, I want to share two observations, principles, applications, uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I'm hoping it won't just help you better understand today's passage, but It'll deepen the power of today's passage in shaping how you walk with Jesus. Uh, it's not enough to have good theology and knowledge of the Bible. That knowledge has to translate in shaping the way we live our lives. And so the first point I want to share with you guys is that God's intention, the intention of God is key if we want to understand God's word. One thing we saw with the Pharisees, uh, was that they were staunch in their devotion to keeping the law of God. Uh, they made rules upon rules to make sure that all their ducks were in a row. Uh, if God commanded people not to walk, uh, sorry, not to work on the Sabbath, um, they would make extra rules, we saw, to make sure that that original rule wasn't broken. Uh, they actually began with good, uh, we can be critical of the Pharisees, but they actually began with the best of intentions. Um, and in a sense, when you see these rules that they placed and burdened other people with, they, 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 they adhered to these rules themselves as well. So in a sense, it's kind of admirable, um, but kind of stupid. Uh, my wife, like for example, if I were to equate it to a modern day example, uh, my wife, uh, I love Oreo McFlurries, uh, 
my wife does not like me eating Maccas or mentioning maybe we should get Maccas because um, she wants me to lose weight. I, I know I need to lose weight. But if she said, Jay, I don't want you eating Oreo McFlurries. If that's the rule and I were to compound that and say, you know what, Jin? Not only am I not going to have Oreo McFlurries, I'm not going to step foot in a Maccas, a KFC, Hungry Jacks or a Domino's for the rest of the year. You could say that. That's, that's admirable. I would never do that. <laughs> However, the problem with the Pharisees in today's passage and the Jewish leaders who created these rabbinic laws was that they totally missed the whole point. The original intention of God in understanding the Sabbath. What it meant for it to be a day of rest and what it meant for the day to be kept holy. As we describe, we saw in the passage earlier, uh, the Sabbath wasn't designed to oppress humanity. Uh, it wasn't designed to imprison us on the seventh day. But as Jesus stated, it was given by the creator God to creation as a gift. And just like with any gift, gifts are meant to be enjoyed. However, the Pharisees totally missed God's intention and whilst we can, you know, stand back, read Mark's gospel, look at the Pharisees and say, you know, how dare they do such a thing? Um, I don't think we're immune from making the same mistake, even as New Testament Christians. It's important that whenever we open this book and study God's word, that we don't make the same mistake as the Pharisees. So that when we read a passage in scripture or a verse in scripture, we have to be careful always to read that verse in its original context so that we not only understand what the verse means, but we understand what God's intention is for that verse when we read any passage in scripture. It's important that we don't twist scripture, take it out of context and miss the original intention like the Pharisees did with the Sabbath. We're not immune to it. And I think many times Christians are guilty. You know, we can be critical of the Pharisees, but I think we are guilty of making the same mistake sometimes. For example, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him or Christ who strengthens me. Some versions say through Christ who gives me strength. Very famous verse. Uh, you find it on a lot of Christian merchandise, cups, shirts, um, this is not a verse that promises you that you can do anything if you're a Christian. I'm 36 years old. I'm not very tall. I, I stopped measuring my height in high school because it was so depressing. I'm not very tall. But I could have all the faith in the world. I could pray all day. But much to my wife's dismay, I'm not going to have a second growth spurt at 36. And I'm not going to end up in the NBA, ever. The intention of this verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, it's to be understood in its context. Because this verse, Paul isn't promising that we can do anything or become anything we want or get anything we want if we just trust in Jesus enough. But if you read through that whole chapter, you understand that this promise is in the context of suffering for God's kingdom. 
Paul, as an apostle to the Gentiles, suffered all kinds of hardship. He was beaten. He was attacked by his own people, the Jews. He was attacked by the Gentiles. He was hated by people even within the church. And he's come out the other side of all of this suffering. And he says, you know what? I can still keep going. I can keep on pressing for the glory of God and for his kingdom. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A more extreme, exa extreme example where we make the same mistakes, mistakes rather, as the Pharisees is Matthew 4.9. And again, this, this horrified me. I, I saw it once on a Christian mug. I was like, really? Like, Matthew 4.9, I don't know if you're familiar with the context, but it, it sounds like a promise from God. It says, all these I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Sounds like an amazing promise from God, doesn't it? All these I will give you if you bow down or you fall down and worship me. What's wrong with that? Well, if you read through the entire of verse uh, chapter 4, you find that this isn't a promise from God. It's a promise from the devil to Jesus when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. Context is imperative when understanding a passage. When we read any verse of scripture, we have to understand what God's intention is to truly capture the meaning and the power of that passage. If you fail in this area, if you ignore the wider context of a passage, then your understanding of God's word becomes flawed. And if your understanding of God's word becomes flawed, your understanding of God becomes flawed. And if your understanding of God becomes flawed, your understanding of the gospel becomes flawed. And when that happens, just like the Pharisees who misunderstood the whole point of the Sabbath, the gifts of God will no longer seem like gifts, but they'll start to feel like a burden, a ball and a chain rather than a promise and a blessing from God that is liberating and gives life. Second point, the Sabbath points to an ultimate rest that Jesus provides what Jesus reminds us in today's passage is that God's intention for the Sabbath uh, was a gift for man. It was a gift designed to ease our burdens. And for the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, you know, they sought these extra man-made rabbinical rules. They created these, and as a result, the Sabbath became a day of burden. It became a day of burden rather than a day for easing their burdens. God's intention for the Sabbath was for it to become a gift because as Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then Jesus went on to declare that he as the second person of the triune Godhead is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, as mentioned earlier, one of the reasons he declares this is to reveal the fact that he is the creator. The seventh day of rest was revealed first in Genesis, and it, you know, he declares this to explain that as creator, I am the one that's actually instituted this day of rest. And if you, go, if you want to understand the true intention of what this day is all about, I'm a good place to begin with. And going even further beyond this, we find that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that because Christ is Lord of the Sabbath, when we look to the gospel, as we live day by day studying the scriptures, we find that the gospel 
points us, and Jesus points us to an even, even greater rest. A greater rest than just a 24-hour day. According to Hebrews 4, the scriptures teach us that Jesus becomes our rest. Why? Because he did all the work necessary for our salvation. What does that mean? Well, going back to last week's sermon, I explained the analogy of the old and the new wineskins, how it represented the old and the new covenant. I explained how it was impossible for us to climb and earn our way back to God. And God, in recognizing this, chooses to climb and work his way down to us. We learn through the Gospels that Jesus lives the perfect righteous life that we couldn't live, dies the death of a sinner that we were meant to die, and rises again conquering death as the sign and seal of our salvation, the assurance that everything has been paid for. And as he hung on the cross, this, this statement that it is finished. By trusting in the person and work of Christ, what we find through the Gospel is that it reveals an even greater rest in Christ because we're set free by his blood. And because we're set free by his blood, God's acceptance of us isn't determined by whether we keep or don't keep a Sabbath. It's not about us trying to work our way back to God, but whether we're trusting in the Lord of this Sabbath. This is why for Christians... The Sabbath should never become a burden. This is why for Christians, the Sabbath is always a celebration. Because on this day of rest, we're celebrating the ultimate rest that Jesus has achieved for us as Lord of the Sabbath. And so that's what I want to conclude with. I encourage you guys um, this week, read through Mark 1, 2, and 3. Go back through the opening chapters of Mark on your own, and meditate what it reveals to us about Jesus. Meditate what it reveals to us about what he accomplished on our behalf and what the Sabbath is all about. Be prayerful in your meditation, reminding yourself that God's intention is key to understanding God's word, and in doing so, understanding in greater depth that in today's passage, through today's passage, that the Sabbath that God instituted for us ultimately points to a greater rest that Jesus provides. Now, I just want to enter into a time of prayer. Now, for the Pharisees, they made the Sabbath a burden. But for so often as we live our lives from day to day, there's so many things that we weigh our hearts and our lives down with. It might not be a ball and chain the way the Sabbath uh, was treated by the Pharisees, but it might be anxiety in your life. It might be this, this guilt of whether we're good enough to come to the Christ. Uh, but what we read in the scriptures is that the Lord of the Sabbath, he's achieved this ultimate rest for us. So it's no longer about us keeping a Sabbath, keeping a rule, or earning through brownie points, earning our way back to God. But that all we need to do is trust in the Lord of the Sabbath. So in this moment, I encourage you guys to spend some time in prayer. I don't know what's burdening your heart. I don't know what anxieties is weighing you down. I don't know what struggles you guys have been going through. Uh, but this Lord of the Sabbath that is revealed through Scripture invites us 
to pray to him. This Lord of the Sabbath is revealed through the scriptures as our friend. And so let's take this time to pray to this king, this king that's greater than David, a greater Moses. And let's, let's lay our petitions at the foot of the cross. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the way the creation account came about. That you spent six days creating the universe and that you chose to rest on the seventh. Not because you needed it, for you are an omnipotent God lacking in nothing. But you instituted the Sabbath as a gift for man so that we might have rest. And we thank you that as New Testament Christians, we see through the gospel of Christ and through the person and work of Christ, our King, our brother and our friend, this Lord of the Sabbath who has achieved an even greater rest that can be received by grace through faith, by trusting in what he has done and no longer having to try in futility to trust in what we can do. Father, we pray that despite any anxiety, any adversary, any trial or tribulation that we might go through in life, that we have this assurance that we can lay these petitions at the foot of the cross to seek our peace, our security, and our stability in the Lord of the Sabbath and in the rest of that he has achieved. We thank you once again, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.